Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by Neurobloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors, available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Jeff Miller. He's a political science and international relations uh, person at the State University of New York at New Paltz. He's He's a professor there, part of the overall Department of Political Science and International Relations. So we're going to talk about uh, his knowledge of uh, ancient Greece, their political thoughts, and uh, how that reflects on today. So, Jeff, thank you for coming. You're welcome. Good to be here. Yeah, tell me a bit about your um, your background and how you got interested in uh, you know political science and ancient Greece and all this stuff that you study now. Well, that's a really long story. I, you know, you say I'm in a political science department, and I am, but I'm a political theorist, which is a little bit different from your typical political scientist. My colleagues, they deal with the data and predictive side of things. I'm more of a political philosopher or historian of political thought, sort of where my, my space is, and I work on ancient Greek thought in particular, although I teach in all different areas. Most of my publications are on ancient Greece. Um, and I'm, I've been very interested in the last couple of years about uh, democratic theory in the ancient world now. How did I come to this? Well, this is that's a harder question. I'll just start off by saying that when I was a child, my grandmother would read to me stories from Herodotus, which kind of populated my imaginary when I was young uh, and made me think there was something really interesting about uh, the ancient world and the Greeks in particular. When I went to college, I thought I wanted to go into politics. And in fact, when I graduated, uh, I got my BA, I actually went and worked in Congress for a couple of years and uh, then decided I wanted to go back to the academy um, and uh, studying political theory uh, in a political hmm. science department and mixing it with the Greeks seemed like a good combination uh, for me. So that's that's um, been sort of my trajectory. Yeah, before we move on, would, would you be okay or was it too traumatic to talk about your days uh, working for Congress, what that was like <laughs> and what you noticed? <laughs> I, I was going to almost say that that cured me of the desire to go into politics. It sort of did. I mean, you probably know a little bit about what working for a member of Congress is like. You know, you have a boss and you're whatever sort of ideas you have, whatever sort of impulses you have, are of course subordinated to that person, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it certainly wasn't where I discovered that I wanted to be. And I guess the, the really surprising thing for me was, you know, I was I started out as a, as a caseworker in a congressional office and then was later a district director. 
And uh, the member that I worked for was about 73, 74 when I was working for him. And I was just out of college. So I was you know, young kid in my 20s, had plenty of energy. But this guy, he would get up in the morning and I'd take, you know, if he was in the district and I'd take him to a chamber of commerce breakfast meeting, then we'd have a lunch date, then we'd have several meetings in the afternoon. And then there was a reception in the evening. And, you know, by 10 o'clock, I was exhausted. And this guy kept wanting to go. And that's, uh, you know. Well, it sounds like you got all his, his food for free. All these I got food for free, money. but I, you know, but I, you know, I couldn't keep up with him, which is kind of an odd thing to say for a 22 year old kid, right? Can't keep up with a 72 year old. But I guess, you know, working in politics and doing the sort of things that politicians have to do, I decided that wasn't sort of what I was interested in. And I, I was more interested in exploring kind of ideas. And so, you know, graduate school back end. And uh, that's, that's how I made my choice. Okay, and then how are you incorporating what happened in ancient Greece? Like, what are some of the interesting things you learned about their political process? Well, you know, I, I came into ancient Greece uh, and Athens in the way that most people do through myth. But then, you know, when I was an undergraduate, I learned Greek, doubled majored as a classic uh, student, and then I, I went on and, and studied more of it in graduate school. And and it it gradually occurred to me that you know there's this this whole world, of course, outside of outside of uh, the mythological context of ancient Greece. And, you know, a lot of this philosophers are pretty familiar with. And one of the things I, I, I kind of came to realize, I, I'm embarrassed to say I came to realize a little bit late, but maybe about a decade ago, I started to think about this. You know, there's this, if you're familiar with 20th century political philosophy or just philosophy in general, there's this whole trend in the 20th century um, to turn back to the ancient world. Um, so you can see this in people like Nietzsche, people like Heidegger, people like Michel Foucault or Giorgio Agamben. They all turn to Republican Rome, uh, ancient Sparta, ancient Athens, and I guess their antecedents to those guys, even in people like Jean-Jacques Rousseau. But they all turn to the ancient world as a sort of corrective um, for the way that uh, they think about politics or philosophy today. Now, this discourse is almost entirely conducted among philosophers, directed at other philosophers, <laughs> directed at their ideas in a way, you know, trying to recalibrate or reset the intellectual world that they inhabit. And it gradually dawned on me that, you know, there's this whole wealth of information there, but it's only the philosophers, only the historians that are kind of availing themselves of this. And, you know, in Athens, in the 5th and 4th centuries BCE, we have a very radical, direct democracy. It was very stable, lasted for almost 200 years, maybe a little bit more, depending on how you're going to measure it. And, uh, and for real political examples of this, we don't have too many people that turn to that, right? So in philosophy, we turn to the ancient world, but in politics, we don't. Um, so why is this a problem? Um, it's not necessarily a problem, but it can be a way of addressing a set of problems. So if you think about, or the way I think about democratic theory today and uh, ideas about democracy, and especially, of course, you know, we're in the United States, so our, our democracy here as well. So I think about, you know, the sorts of problems that we face, and I look at the sorts of solutions or ideas about how to fix them and see how they're proposed, and, and I find that um, there's a kind of a lack of imagination. So I think it is well, one, one thing um, you mentioned that was really interesting is you said, like, in, you know, older cultures would look at even older cultures and what happened before. And it seems like today's politics has zero memory, even six months before it's completely right. different and there's no looking back. And 
I would guess there's probably not much insight because no one looks back. You're right. Americans are particularly notorious for this and, and no more so than our politics. You can't remember from one election to the next. Right. So and if, you know, if we do if we do look back, we look at we look at our own history and maybe we look at the founding moments. Maybe we look at the Civil War, things like this. But it, but it's a narrow scope. So, you know, it occurred to me, you know, we have this vibrant democracy from 200 years ago. They faced a lot of the same problems that we face. They came up with very different solutions from the ones that we do, and they have a very different understanding of, you know, both the nature of democracy itself and, of course, you know, the relationship between citizens, the responsibilities of citizens, the duties of citizens. We can avail ourselves of these things. I mean, you know, if, if you think about if you ask the average person today, what's what's a democracy, the first thing they're probably going to go to are, uh, are elections. And it's true. Elections are important in democracy. But really interestingly, if you ask an ancient Greek across the board, whatever their political spectrum or perspective, what what uh, elections were characteristic of, they would say, well, it's, those are characteristics of oligarchies. Oligarchs and oligarchies have elections. Democracies don't do that. Right? So right off the bat, sort of the, the first go-to for the average person about what democracy is, is, is kind of ruled out of court by the Athenians. They say, no, that's not characteristic of democracy. And, you know, the reasons for this are pretty obvious, right? If you think about traditionally, right, who wins elections? Well, the wealthy, the powerful, the well-known elections pick out of the population people who are already powerful and put them into power, their way of perpetuating power. That's the way the Greeks would have viewed it in brief, right? There's more to it than that. So they would kind of put that over on the oligarchic side, and they turn to other mechanisms for, uh, for selecting public officials. Just things coming to mind, even the word democracy, I'm hearing in my head, democratists. I mean, was democracy literally a Greek, Greek word? And was there a person who was uh, named something like that? Yeah, there is a Greek philosopher named Democritus, um, but the name, the, the word democracy actually antedates uh, Democritus, the person. He might have been named in honor of the, I don't know, I didn't talk to his parents, I don't know, might have been named in honor of democracy. But uh, democracy is actually almost a direct transliteration of the Greek, two words in Greek, demos, which means people, and kratos, which means power. So kind of a literal translation of democracy is people power. Um, the term, we think we see the first instances of it really early on in the um, fifth century, maybe a little bit into the sixth century, but it seems to appear right around the same time Athenian democracy appears as a way of describing what's going on over and against more traditional forms of rule at that time, uh, over and against oligarchies or over and against monarchies or tyrannies. It's a way of distinguishing this sort of new field. Yeah, why would people say that um, elections are as part of an oligarchy? What, I mean, what is an oligarchy and why are elections not, at least in ancient times, thought of as akin to democracy and how it works? Yeah, oligarchy is another good Greek word, right? So oligos, the first part of it is, is few, and archos is rule over in this case. So it's rule by the few in sort of a literal sense. Um, and for the Greeks, this is also, and for us too, right? It's usually not just the few, but the wealthy, rule by the wealthy. So what I said before is the Greek, is the Athenian democratic criticism of elections. Um, elections tend to result in the victories of people who are wealthy, people who are well-known, people who are powerful, people who are aristically or oratorically talented, especially in Athens, where everything's sort of a verbal society. So it's a way of kind of restricting elections for the Greeks are a way of restricting power to a small set of people, people who already have some sort of influence in society. So in Athenian democracy, they viewed this as problematic because of their commitments to equality. So elections yielded a particular type of candidate, not just a particular type of candidate, but a particular type of victor. And 
and they wanted to spread political power more broadly across the, the, the demos, the people. Okay. So what, what kind of solutions were envisioned in uh, ancient Greece that worked or didn't work? What can we learn from it? Yeah, well, there's a whole slew of different things. In, in the book, uh, the book Democracy in Crisis that just came out this year that I, that I wrote, I sample a whole bunch of different ways in which uh, Athenian democracy attempted to kind of articulate its values and, and spread its power. Um, but I can, I can focus on a couple of things here. Since we're talking about elections, you know, the most obvious question, the first question, I say, you know, Athens, Athens doesn't tend to use ath- elections very much um, in the classical period. So how do they decide on their public officials? Because there are public officials in Athens, right? Athenians turned instead to this thing, the fancy name for it is sortition, but we would just call it a lottery, right? So the Athenians filled, we're not sure of the exact number, somewhere north of 1,100, so 1,100 positions every year civic positions on the basis of basically a lottery on the basis of sortition. And these were all sorts of positions up and down uh, the political architecture of Athens. So the most, some of the most important physicians and then some, some lesser positions in Athens. So this means that any, any public official that you ran into in Athens was likely, very likely to have been someone that was just selected by uh, a lottery system. So, for example, um, in the port area of Athens, uh, there was a group of officials that was in charge of making sure that the weights and measurements you'd f- used for trade were consistent across the board and were fair. And they needed about 10 people to serve on this board. And so every year they'd select more or less at random 10 citizens and they put them together on a board uh, and they say, okay, you guys are in charge of this, right? Um, there are, there's a group of people that are in charge of keeping the streets clean. There are groups of people that are in charge of various military uh, activities, people that are in charge of various festivals, a whole series of these boards, usually made up of more than one person, probably 10, put together um, working on a particular issue. So it's kind of startling, right? It's kind of like us opening a phone book up. I guess we, we really don't have phone books anymore. But imagine you had a phone book still and you opened it up and you said, OK, we need some town counselors. We need a superintendent of highways. We need you know, someone to oversee this grant program, whatever it is. And you land on a person at random and you pick them out of the, out of, out of the pile and say, hey, guess what? OK, this year you're it. You're going to do it. Um, very rarely would the Athenians put this sort of responsibility on one person. It was usually a group. Um, this allowed for a little bit of leeway. Some citizens doing this sort of activity wouldn't necessarily know too much about it. Others would know a lot. Some would have connections. Some wouldn't. Some might be you know, really eager to participate. Maybe others have other concerns. And you know, you could always get sick or just might be sort of a case of incompetence. But the, the fact that the board's made up of about 10 people um, means that the the ground's going to be covered. So for this basic bureaucratic, we would think of it as kind of a bureaucratic infrastructure. We have this rotating group of citizens, each appointed for a year on a particular board, overseeing the basic aspects of the city. And then the main body, uh, the main legislative body of Athens, the assembly, which is the theoretically the meeting of all adult male citizens, but more likely probably about 6,000 people at any given meeting. This body is, uh, is uh, overseen by a, by a group called the Council, the Brule in ancient Greece. And this is 500 people <laughs> that are picked at random uh, through a very complex process that makes representation on the Brule match the geographic, social, and demographic uh, variety of Athens, makes them all represented on this board. This group of 500 people was sort of like the steering committee for the city. And then a smaller subcategory of that would have been in charge on a rotating basis 
on a day-to-day basis, uh, the, the activities of the city. And then one person, here's kind of the most astonishing thing. One person was the head of the council. Every day there was a new head of the council. And this person who was the head of the council was, of course, selected on the basis of a lottery. But it basically meant that for a day, this person was head of state. Um, he was the person that you know, first greeted the ambassadors. He was the person that convened the council. He was the person that drove decision making. One scholar, uh, Moens Hansen, a very famous Danish scholar, um, does some calculations, roughly back of the envelope calculations, and suggests that at any given time, about a quarter of the Athenian citizens had served as head of state for a day. Wow. Right? That's astonishing. It's like a quarter of the Americans would have been president for a day. That's kind of, that's kind of the equivalent here. It's amazing. What was learned from that? What was noticed? Uh, what was learned from that? Well, yes. what, what, what can we learn from that? Yeah. So the first thing you, you, the first kind of response, and this was a response that some sort of some oligarchic or aristocratically minded Athenians or Greeks leveled at the Athenian democracy is, you know, hey, you can't put just anybody in charge of these positions. You know, they're not going to they're not going to have the necessary competence to do this sort of work. What if they flub it? Right. And this is sort of concern. So the first thing you can take away from this is that the, the, the Athenians actually, you know, understood this problem. This is why they didn't appoint single people. They had boards. This is why, you know, even boards rotated pretty quickly. You know, terms of office were only a year. That head of state business, that's only a day, right? So, you know, there's a limit to how long you're going to serve. But it also shows that the Athenians really thought or really had a great deal of confidence in the ability of average citizens in consultation with others collectively, right, um, to do the business of the city. Now, I should note here, there were certain offices that they did not distribute on the basis of a lottery. So there are 10 generals every year in Athens, and those guys are elected every year. Right? Um, there are certain financial offices that seem to require some ability to, as you would expect, right, to keep a spreadsheet or you know, the ancient equivalent of that, some sort of statistical or uh, numeracy. So those offices are elected. But right, um, it's it's actually a relatively small number of offices that are elected in a year. Most offices, the Athenians think, well, you know, the average guy, the average person can step in and do this. And if they don't know how to do it immediately, they can learn. Right. So this is this is a great deal of confidence, you know, placed on the average citizen. It's also a way for the Athenians um, to keep control of their government. Right. If membership shifts from year to year, sometimes from day to day, on these boards and these different magistracies. You don't have the sort of accreted power that tends to build up in bureaucracies, traditional bureaucracies and liberal democracies today, which tend to have their own right. institutional momentum, right? And they have their own interests over and against, you know, the interests of the legislator. Legislator. Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent pending bright daily capsules powered by Neurobloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors, available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. Well, I've been asking 
a few people I've spoken to about sortition. Are there any examples of corporations or governments that are using sortition with limited terms and you know random selects and all that? And the answer so far has been no. But actually, you're saying from 2,000 years ago it was yes. We just didn't know. It, it was just 2,000 years ago, and uh, and it's actually the answer is starting to be maybe and let's try it today, which is which is. I think the most shocking thing. So I have I have a lots of different descriptions of lots of different Athenian institutions in my book, um, but the one that I'm most excited about and the one that I think has the the best chances today is actually this idea of sortition. Now, none of the Athenian institutions you can't just take them and drop them down in the United States for obvious reasons, right? They need to be kind of shaped for our particular time period. But the really interesting thing about this is that there are a number of communities in the world and in the United States, in particular, that are experimenting with. Um, lotteries with sorticians. Usually these things are called citizen assemblies or mini publics. You might know that uh, last November, I think it was, the city of Paris instituted the first standing uh, citizens assembly in Europe. Uh, They uh, meet together, they select citizens, 100 citizens every year. Those citizens meet together and they draft deliberations or they have deliberations and they draft proposals, which then go on to the city council for a debate and vote. I was kind of excited just the other day because I just read that Petaluma, California, it's a town in central California, about 60,000 people in it. Uh, just decided to institute a citizens assembly there. They donated, they uh, uh, designated $450,000 to pay for this. And they're going to get average citizens chosen by lot. This won't be citizens, this will be residents rather, chosen by lot to plan for the future uses of their municipal fairgrounds. There are other examples of this around the world. So there's Paris, there's Petaluma, right? Um, There's a French national uh, mini public that's been used to talk about climate. Um, East Belgium has a very well-developed, pretty well-established citizens council. Newham, London, there were some experiments up this with uh, up, up in BC, British Columbia, um, with this about a decade ago. So I guess one of the things I would say about this is this is kind of an exciting way to think about breaking the legislative log jams we see in so many governing institutions where you know, politics are so polarized and so difficult because of you know, the structure of campaign donations and the influence of money um, to, to shift things that we have this sort of this new interest in just taking average people off the street, right? Having them sit down for a certain period of time, giving them a topic to come to some conclusions about. They consult experts, they bring experts in, they deliberate amongst themselves, and then they produce a document, which then goes on to, you know, the constitutionally designated body to make a decision on this. I think this is a very exciting thing. Um, So it's not sortition lottery from the entire citizen population, right? Not every citizen participates, but it does have the kind of cross-sectional appeal that legislatures today do not. You know, you have the perspective of the ancient and the current. So what can we learn? You know, if if I was to call you in to advise me on how to implement sortition for my company, let's say, what would you tell me based on what you learned from uh, ancient Greece? Well, I would say, you know, in in the modern world, it it probably isn't practical to have every issue decided on the basis of sortition or a lottery. But I would think that uh, I would recommend that anything that is particularly problematic, right, where there's a very, very difficult decision to be made, where there's a lot of a lot of influence being peddled um, by either side, a lot of money being spent on an issue. Really what you want to do is you want to kind of take that issue out of the pressure cooker that contemporary legislatures have, have found themselves in and make a space where 
you know, people that are collected randomly can make some sort of decision about it. So, you know, they're very helpful, I think, to, to deal with that kind of issue, some sort of big, uh, big ticket issue. How do you think it would work? Let's say, again, I had a credit union uh, and, you know, I wanted to have X number of the board members be people selected. You know, they, they'd be asked beforehand, let's say, uh, you know, yeah. all the members would be asked, hey, this opportunity will come up. It's a one term type thing to be on the board. It'll be paid. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and in the future, we're going to randomly select. We want you to pre-approve that if we select, you'll you'll consider it and you're willing to do it. And have you ever seen an organization, again, anywhere recently that has done this, where they're literally run by sortition, their major positions, you know, turn over every X, you know, year or two, and they are all sortition based? Um, I haven't seen a major corporation, a major business, not that I know of, run entirely on those grounds. But I, I, I myself have served on our local credit union in this sort of capacity. You know, I think they're required to have oversight boards, and those oversight boards are not not generated randomly, but they ask for volunteers. But so here's here's the advantage to something like that, right? So often, if you get a bunch of guys, and I, I do mean this purposefully, guys um, that look like me, if you can't see me, I'm, I'm a white adult, you know, fifty something male, right? We get into a room together and we talk to one another and we often miss really important things that just aren't kind of on our radar they're not on our horizon they don't constitute part of our imaginary and there are lots of sociological studies today that show that if you have a much more diverse group that's more reflective of the population that you find yourself in or the constituents of a business or the shareholders of a business you'll have deliberations that are substantively different. And actually there's a lot of evidence pointing to them being more efficacious um, just in a strict, narrow, instrumental business sense, right? So this is just sort of a fancy way of saying representation and diversity actually seems to matter um, practically. Um, It matters practically in terms of outcomes. And of course it matters a lot in terms of, you know, the visibility of the business, the visibility of the of the political organization, right? Um, citizens need to see themselves mirrored um, in the institution that helps create legitimacy for it. So how do you get that? Well, it's hard to do, right? One way to do it, though, is through kind of a random selection. If you do a random selection, most of the time, your population on your citizen assembly or on your council, assuming it's large enough, is going to be roughly representative roughly map onto the onto the diversity of your your local population so these can be very helpful um, both in a practical sense you know in terms of the business in terms of the uh, the quality of the laws um, and it can also be helpful in in the sense of uh, enhancing the legitimacy of the institution what are some of the criteria for diversity that you've seen work versus just like you know platitudes of oh, you know these different races so therefore we're diverse like <laughs> you know between meritocracy if you could establish such a thing and just, you know, the, the buzzword diversity, have you seen any organizations in terms of sortition have parameters that seem to be more useful than others? Well, I, sh- I, I should say, I don't, um, you know, I'm not aware of, there may be, but I'm, I, and I might not be aware of them. I'm not aware of any businesses that make these decisions on the basis of, uh, of sortition. So I, I mentioned that I'd, I'd served on my local credit union, but this was because I'm mean, probably like you, they, they sent around an invitation. They said, would you like to do this? Would you be interested if we select you? And then they have an interview and then they select you. So that's not really a, a random selection. I, I volunteer for it, right? So I'm self-selecting and uh, and then I have to be interviewed. So there's some sort of criteria by which the interviewers are, are making their decision as well. So that's not, that's not really a random selection. Um, the only places in government that I've seen this 
happen are these some of these uh, institutions that I've mentioned before in East Belgium or in Petaluma or in Paris, where it really is a random selection. So they, uh, the way that they do that is they, uh, most of these are not just citizens, but residents. They survey a set number of people, depending on how big they want the uh, citizens assembly to be. And they survey a larger number of people and ask, would you be willing to do this? And if the people respond, yes, I'd be willing to do it, then they put their name in the hopper and they come up with uh, a certain number of people who they ask if they actually participate. So uh, that number should be high enough to actually ensure that the citizens council or the public can be fully populated. But at that point, you have something that looks a little bit more like a random selection. And, you know, in order to do this, you need to ensure that, you know, some of the things that we often neglect in politics are, are taken care of, right? So not everybody can take the time to do this. Some people have children, some people have businesses or jobs, you think about the people who volunteer to run the elections, you walk into an electoral place, they're, they're almost all retired, right? Because all these retired people, they have plenty of time. Um, they're almost all middle class because they have the money and the leisure to kind of sit down and, and do this sort of thing. So in all of these mini publics that I mentioned, there are considerable efforts to make sure that the citizens who are doing this or the residents who are doing this have access to free childcare while they're doing it, get compensated to a certain extent, to make the, make it worth their time so they can kind of give up on whatever they're doing, uh, whatever time they're sacrificing, you know, in terms of their work or their job or their real life uh, career to do this sort of thing. So is there, you know, is there transportation for them? All these sort of sub rosa questions, right, are things that really need to be addressed if you're going to get a genuine uh, random sample of the citizen body. Uh, I think it would be great yeah. if some of the some some corporations did this as well. It's very expensive to do it, of course, right? That uh, the city of Petaluma—that's a half a million dollars they're going to spend, you know, for one citizens' assembly. It's not cheap. Why is it expensive? What? Where does the big expense come from, and why couldn't it be optimized to be not expensive? Well, some of it is from those things that I listed off, right? If you're going to have a bunch of people and provide childcare, if you're going to provide transportation, if you're going to give them some sort of stipend right off the bat, you've got a, you know, a, an expense there. Then you have to, you know, have a place for them. You have to have, you have to rent a hall or have a space available to them. You have to probably, you have to make, give them coffee and maybe a little bit of food. You have to bring in external experts. One of the things about these citizens assemblies um, is that they, they bring in, kind of academic or political experts to come in and talk with the mini public to come in and talk with the citizens assembly and say, Hey, this is what we think. Here's the way to think about it. You hear all these different views and you know, you have to pay those experts. One thing you just mentioned, you said the you know, experts will come in and they tell them how to think. I don't, I don't think you meant it exactly that way, but yeah. What, enough, what are some of the dangers with this, where that would happen, where yeah. it would look like on the surface that things are random, but they're not at all. They're totally contrived. Well, um, I guess the, the first thing that we, we would want to say about this, I mean, first, I, you're right. The experts don't tell them how to think, but they, they make a case. They say, Here, here's what I think the facts show, right? And then the, the decision is left up to the mini public or the citizens assembly. I guess the first thing I would say about these, you know, even, even with all of these sort of attempts to ensure a diverse, you know, uh, representative uh, sample of the citizens or the, or the residents in the area, you're never going to get a fully random sample. That, that seems to be beyond the realm of possibility. Some people just don't want to participate. And to a certain extent, even people who volunteer, they're, they're a little bit self-selected as well. They're already maybe sort of interested in it. They might be already interested in politics. So you can never make sure that you can get a perfectly random sample. But compared to the state legislatures or the county governments, or certainly to the U.S. Congress, they are far more representative, far more you know, uh, likely to map onto the reality of the population. So that 
is really the goal. You know, you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good here, right? This is a substantial step forward. Well, I was just asking, how do you prevent corruption in the sortition oh. process where now it has the public image of being random and therefore better and citizens are involved, but because yeah. of the internal workings of it, it becomes corrupted where right. it's really, you know, they're, they're no more than shills for the existing puppet masters to keep, you know, keep things going the way they want. Yeah, f- uh, fair enough. Um, well, these, these are interesting questions and they're important things to address. So, you know, the first thing that you want to you'd note about any of these citizens assembly is that they're entirely public. Um, Not that you can go and kind of sit there while they deliberate, but things will be recorded, right? The sessions are online. You can listen to what they're saying, right? So if you're an interested citizen or you have sort of the suspicion that things are skewed one way or the other, you can kind of zero in and see what's actually going on. Um, uh, More subtle things are sort of in the actual selection of, experts that are brought in to speak, right? So this is actually a really tricky thing. How do you ensure that you get, you know, a, a, a balance of the right kind of experts that also represent sort of the, the different views in the field? Um, to do this, you know, takes a little bit of careful deliberation and planning. Um, so I think the idea here is that, uh, you know, if, you, if the process is totally transparent, right? If you can see that these guys aren't getting money and it's usually too big of a group to to corrupt in that sort of way anyway. Um, If you can see that they're not interested in the institution as an institution, but interested in the issue, then that will build confidence or faith in the citizens assembly. Uh, Does it mean that, does it mean that any one person there won't be a shell for a particular industry? Probably not. Right. But that person will only be one person uh, out of 500 or however many there are. Well, what are some of the elements that can be put in place to prevent corruption? You know, like, for instance, term limits, let's say one term of, you know, yeah. a certain amount of time for anyone and they cannot come back. Maybe yeah. that would mitigate some of the potential problems. Like, what, what do you, that's, what do you that's think the case. your studies would help? That's the case with the Paris Citizens Assembly, right? You know, they, it's, it's a one, one-shot deal, right? They, they deliberate. Uh, and then they bring in another group, right? Uh, that's the same thing with East Belgium. So it's, it's a shifting number of people, right? If you're not going to be in there forever, you know, you're not this sort of target for bribery. And, you know, the, the number, again, is too large to bribe in that sense. So you, you don't have sort of the, you don't, you don't develop these sort of institutional interests that members of Congress, members of assemblies, state assemblies, or, you know, members of the bureaucracy get over time. Um, in Athens itself, I think I told you, you know, the, there's a very, very strict enforcement of time limits. Athens actually also had two other mechanisms by which they held public officials accountable. So they had kind of a, a preliminary interview and then a, a kind of an exit interview, right? So um, when you were selected by lottery, you didn't automatically get the seat. You had to come before board, the board of randomly selected citizens, of course, and they would ask you, are you a citizen? Are you in good standing? If your answers to those questions were yes, basically you're in, right? Afterwards, though, there's, there's a more serious review of the work that you did. They held what's called a euthani, which is a kind of a review. And any citizen of Athens that thought you'd behave badly during your term of office could come and bring a formal charge against you. And the board would decide whether that formal charge had merit and whether you needed to go to court. But this could be, you know, a, a dangerous prospect for somebody who uh, was seriously charged with 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 a, with a crime so um you know they had these sort of checks on the front and back end um as well in athens now to my knowledge there's nothing like that in any of the citizens assemblies um that have been tried around the world but 
I think the key thing is that the citizens' assemblies, at this point at least, don't have final say on things. So one 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 of the reasons why the citizens' assembly is such an interesting workaround um, for co- contemporary liberal democracies is because they really are just a workaround of the traditional route of going through the legislature or going through the bureaucratic process for rules making. Right, you circumvent that initial debate in the legislature, you have that debate done in the Citizens' Assembly, and then the results get sent to the constitutionally designated body that makes decisions. Now, that doesn't mean that the decisions of the Citizens' Assemblies are always adopted. In fact, sometimes they're voted down. But that's that's kind of, an, I guess, you, if you want to think about it as an additional check, that's an additional check on them. So wh- why did this disappear for 2,000 years, or did it? You know, what happened to the uh... The wisdom of ancient Greece, where did it go in regards to this? Did it die back then or did it just get forgotten? Uh, well, uh, sortition and lotteries in the Athenian way of doing it, you know, died with, uh, with the death of Athenian democracy in the last half of the fourth century. Athens was kind of absorbed into some much larger kingdoms first and then, then empires. And then eventually, of course, as you probably know, into the Roman Empire. Um, so government became more and more distant and it certainly wasn't a democratic form of government. Um, you can see, you see little instances of sortition popping up occasionally in the Italian city states of the late medieval and early modern period, you see some instances where decision-making, where office holding, at least among elites, is distributed on the basis of lotteries. But there's not too much of this that happens beyond Athens itself. Um, Lotteries kind of go the way of democracy. Democracy for a long time was kind of a hiss and a byword, right? Uh, Lots of people criticized Athenian democracy, both in the ancient world and all the way up to the modern period as, you know, being as consisting of a government that uh, was was unable to rule effectively. They were kind of... uh, they were inefficacious. They flip flop from day to day. They were subject to, you know, flights of oratory. They were more interested in listening to speakers than making decisions. Um, they were corrupt. There was this whole series of uh, of criticisms that were leveled against the democracy. A lot of them are reducible to a lack of faith in average citizens to make decisions that are consequential for the state or for the city in the case of Athens. So you see this even in the founding documents of the American Revolution, right? None of those guys are Democrats. They would have rejected the word. They, if they look to the ancient world at all, they look to the Roman Republic, kind of a mixed form of constitution, right? And they didn't want direct democracy. Direct democracy, even in the kind of limited form that we have today, is a, is a latecomer even to the U.S. Constitution. You see, it gradually seeps in a little bit. But democracy has not been popular, and is, you know certainly lotteries haven't been popular, again, because of this sort of... Um, you know, prejudice towards the better educated, prejudice towards the the more elite classes and allowing them to make uh, the decisions. What um, Was there any wisdom on how to uh, fire or get rid of anyone that uh, really screwed? <laughs> uh, yeah, so an, uh, yeah, there is. No, I have a, yeah. Uh, well, not well through sortition. No. Right. So if you if you're on a board of if you're on a board of magistrates in ancient Athens and one of the guys on your board isn't really functioning well, you know, you might be able to kind of push him out and do the work without him. Um, but for cases of corruptions, except in really extraordinary cases, you'd wait for the uh, for the the board examination at the end, the youth and I at the end. But, you know, along these lines, the Athenians did have this kind of very unique way of dealing with people who did bad things or were dangerous for the democracy. Um, and this is called uh, ostracism. I have a whole chapter of this 
on this on this topic in my book. Uh, ostracism, we know it today. You know, you just kind of push someone away. You don't talk with them. You can be ostracized from your family or from your religion or if you're friends in society. But this this term is actually a Greek term, and it comes from the Greek word for a piece of piece of pottery, a broken piece of pottery on the ground. And ostracon. Um, every year, the Athenians, at the beginning of the of the calendar year, would get together and they'd vote as to whether or not they wanted to have an ostracism. And the ostracism vote is the decision whether or not someone needs to be kicked out of Athens for a period of 10 years. It's a, it's a form of exile. And they'd pick up, if they voted for an ostracism, they'd have a second meeting about a month, two months later, and they'd pick up a pottery shard on the ground. Pots were the common way of transporting goods in the ancient world. So there are lots of these pottery shards on the ground. And they inscribe the name of the person they want ostracized. And I'm simplifying the process a little bit, but basically they all got together and they put the pottery shards in a big pile. And if there were a sufficient number of them, there's a little bit of debate about the number, probably about 6,000 6, people participate. Then the winner, I'm using scare quotes here, the winner has to leave the city of Athens for 10 years. Now it's really interesting, right? The people who are ostracized are not ostracized because they'd broken a particular law Athens had a court system to deal with lawbreakers. Ostracisms were for people who were so wealthy or so powerful that they warped the democratic space around them. The Athenians were saying to these people, hey, you haven't done anything illegal, but you, you, you're so powerful, you're so rich, you can't be part of a democracy. You, you, you prevent equality from being one of the primary outcomes. And they say, you haven't done anything wrong, but you have to take yourself and your property and your family, if you like, and you have to leave Athens for a period of 10 years. There's no penalty beyond that. You don't go to jail. You don't get a fine. Your family can stay, your estates, your land, whatever you have in Athens, that can all stay. Um, but you have to leave for 10 years. And after 10 years, you can come back. We have instances of individuals who are ostracized once, spent 10 years out, returned, and then within a couple of years, were ostracized again. <laughs> these guys were like, right? But the basic message here again for these people is that you know some forms of power are incompatible with democratic government. And it's, it's striking that it does not require some sort of formal legal censure, right? You know, you think about who gets ostracized, right? It's not the guy down the street. It's not your cousin. It's the person who's very wealthy, comes from an old noble family, has a lot of money, and has all of this influence. I mean, just you know, even if I wanted to vote against my neighbor and ostracize him, not enough people would do it as well, right? The people who win the ostracisms are the, are the wealthy, are the powerful. Gotcha. So what would be your dream test case uh, for a sortition, you know, in today's modern age? Would it be a company? Would it be a local government? Like, and what would it look like? Well, you know, my concerns are mostly with the government. I think, uh, I think uh, companies, because of the rules about private property in the United States, would be a tougher thing to do. But I think that most state and larger forms of local municipalities could use effectively um, some form of citizens assembly as an adjunct to their decision-making process. I'm kind of actually a little bit optimistic about this. I think, you know, you know, you know what we always say in, in American politics, right? The states are the laboratories of democracy, right? So we can see some cities um, and some states kind of dipping their toe into this realm of sortition to deal with sort of very difficult issues. And you can actually see sort of the attractiveness of this to more traditional lawmakers, right? Lawmakers who may not want to make a decision on a highly politicized issue, may want to punt a little bit and give it to somebody else or give it to a citizen's assembly to give them a little cover for making the decision. You can see some some motivation there on the part of more normal politicians to go along with this. 
I'm also optimistic about it because, you know, it would be really hard to institute ostracism. Although I have to say, you know, Donald Trump seemed to have been ostracized from Twitter. It was pretty effective ostracism, right? Cut off at the knees. And that That's going to be a really hard thing to kind of mimic in American society. But I think I think sortition is something that we could realistically shoot for, um, uh, even at the very, very local levels, right? If you have um, some sort of you know, financial windfall, or you have some piece of property um, that the city's thinking about doing something with, well, instead of the city council making a decision about it, how about convening a board of citizens, representative of everybody in the city, not just citizens, but residents across the board, and let them deliberate about it and make some recommendations. Okay, well, very good. What's the name of your book? Sounds very interesting. Where is it available? And um, I want to ask people how to get in in touch with you as well. Yeah, the the book is called Democracy and Crisis, Lessons from Ancient Athens. Um, the publisher is academic, uh, imprint academic, and the, it's this year. It came out in January. You can you can get it on all the normal places. You can get it at Amazon. You can go to your bookstore um, and order it there. Um, and people are, are welcome to email me directly. Uh, I'm at millerj at newpulse.edu. That's my email address. They, they can, of course, contact me. I also have a web page. If they're interested in seeing that, they can uh, look at my web page. It's a little, little more complex, but I'll just I'll uh, speak it out for you. It's faculty.newpaltz.edu backslash Jeff Miller. And the college is New Paltz, N-E-W-P-A-L-T-Z. So uh, you can see my website there, my, my blog page, and there are references to the, to the book there, some other interviews I've given. You can go to the Amazon site and see the book itself. And uh, boy, you know, uh, take a look, um, not just at my book, but take a look at Citizens Assemblies and, and Sortition more generally. Excellent. Well, it's been a really cool call. I've been glad to speak to you and thank you for coming. And I appreciate it. Okay. Thanks very much. Nice chatting with you, Richard. Enjoy the rest of your day. Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by NeuroBloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.